Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Once again, it is the first Friday Eve of the year 2024. You know what we got to say today? Another day, another bomb threat. Please tell the folks what's going on down there at, around the Capitol. And once again, it's not just in the Magnolia State, but since that's hitting closer to home, I'll give you that update first. There apparently was a bomb threat sent in to the Mississippi Supreme Court. Wow. And I'm seeing reports that there may have been another one at the Hines County Courthouse because it has also been evacuated. So the Mississippi Supreme Court, the Mississippi State Capitol, and the Hines County Courthouse and tax assessor's office and all that have all been evacuated due to bomb threats. But, just like all the rest have recently been, there are other states also encountering the same problem. There was a bomb threat called in to the Pulaski County Courthouse in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Hmm. there were two bomb threats to courthouses in Maine. One in Portland, Maine, and the other in Augusta, Maine. Well... Allow me to describe whomever this is once again with perfect clarity. Idiots. This is ridiculous. Does this not make us look foolish also on the global stage, if you think about it, that such could occur in this country? And it looks like there's another one at the Cascade Cascade County Courthouse in Great Falls, Montana. Do you think this is copycat nonsense? Uh, my honest opinion it is is it is a foreign foe prodding, poking, and testing response times. Okay. That's a plausible theory. I can't I mean, imagine why. why. Else would, why would a copycat be calling a man across the country? That's true. I mean, only 10 million people have come across in the last three years, of which we know virtually nothing about, correct? I mean, we're not vetting these people, as we should, but they're seeking asylum. That's who we are. I mean, my assumption is based on the fact that we recently had reports that the Chinese spy balloon 
was just using an American ISP yeah. internet service provider. Like, yeah, this is how we're connecting. It's not something super serious and technical that they've had to figure out in spycraft. No, they just seem to realize nobody's paying attention. That's the country right. is asleep at the wheel. Well, it starts in the White House, does it not? The sleeper in charge? <laughs> sleeper in chief? <laughs> wow. You saw he came back red face with a severe sunburn. Didn't he just have, like, Well, every picture cancer? you have of him at the beach is either him feebly trying to move a beach chair or sprawled out, just, ah, <laughs> just dead to the world under the sun. Wow. We have got uh, Representative Stacy Hopgood-Wilkes on the program today. She represents District 108, which incorporates Pearl River County. Served in the prior term as the vice chair of the House Constitution Committee. Representative Wilkes will join us at 11.05. And then at 12... There's also a bomb threat at the Harrison County Courthouse in Gulfport. Okay. Uh, we are washing idiots in idiocy. Unbelievable. Man, oh man. Mike from Madison says, it's probably a lone wolf. Unabomber type. It's hard to tell. And, of course, I don't think we've got any details as to exactly how the threat was communicated, right? The closest thing I've found to concrete statements on it is there seems to be a a trend of the reporting mentioning emails. Okay. So they're just sending emails, hey, we're going to blow the place up. You think that's what's going on here? I don't think we got... Any confirmation that, or did we? Yesterday. No, we didn't get any confirmation on Mississippi. The one, the statement from Georgia, I believe, <laughs> that's did say right. email. That's right. Um, and we had a total of six, which received threats, capitals yesterday, right? Yes. Specifically capitals. Yes. Today we got courts. Our Supreme Court, Hines County District Court. Unbelievable. And it's MEC Capital Day down at the Trademark. So you got a lot of those folks down there. Lucian Smith filling in for Mr. Gallo this morning, (laughs) hosted the Gallo Show there at the Trademark. I was there last night for the big Coast annual reception, all the Gulf Coast Fair, always good. A lot of people. I will say this, that new Trademark, what an improvement over the old one. Oh, yeah. By orders of magnitude. Very comfortable. Uh, a delight, honestly. I've been to numerous events there, and I saw our set set up outside there in the alcove that services the main room. Really a good place. Looking uh, looking forward to more events down there this year. And, of course, all the statewide leaders, I believe, will speak today at Capitol Day. That's the Mississippi Economic Council invites those figures to come share their vision, talk about what they got going on. We had Speaker of the House Jason White on this morning with um, Lucian Smith. He shared his vision as well. We'll be hearing, of course, more from them. At 12.05, it is Senator Tyler McCon. He represents District 31. That's East Central Mississippi. Includes Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott counties. 
previously he served as the chair of the Senate Forestry Committee, vice chair, Senate Agriculture Committee. You recall he typically joins us when we host a remote for the Mississippi Logging Association up there in Starkville. So I saw the senator and the representative last night at the Coast event. And uh, they both told me they were coming on. I hadn't checked the schedule yet. I didn't know. So, uh, okay. <laughs> well, we, look, we look forward to those discussions. You know, something we haven't talked about is uh, predictions for 2024. And I caught an interesting opinion article penned by Michael McKenna. He's just a contributing editor to the Washington Times, also hosts a podcast entitled The Unregulated. This is what Mr. McKenna says. Former President Donald Trump will win the 2024 presidential election. He does forecast that there will be protests, riots in places like Washington, New York, and Portland, Oregon. Not sure why he selected Portland, uh, other than it was kind of ground zero, was it not, um, after the George Floyd incident. It was one of the cities. Wasn't it Portland that had the chop, chaz, chump thing? Their own little country right there. Yeah. <laughs> their own little hippie commune where the homeless guy <laughs> tore up their garden. That's right. And they and were begging had, people for adult diapers and size 36 pants. With signs, right? Uh, Please, we need wet wipes and diapers. You're grown adults, people. <laughs> Weren't they also uh, out there requesting cigarettes and pot and stuff? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, old Mayor Jenny, remember? Oh, it's so nice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So uh, Mr. McKenna goes on to say the various legal efforts to put Mr. Trump in jail will remain unresolved as of Election Day. This is something, so I think uh, right now I'd say Mr. Trump it will prevail. That's my prediction. I think he handily will win the primary, be the Republican nominee. He's neck and neck in national polls with uh, the current president. However, the key is the head-to-head matchups in the swing, so-called swing states. That's where it matters. The rest of them doesn't matter. The popular vote. Doesn't matter, honestly, the way we elect presidents in this country. This is something that um, the view, his view here is something that I also share, that the Democrats will likely regain control of the House, but the Republicans will gain control of the Senate. I'm sort of feeling that as well. I really am. Also says, uh, <laughs> congressional Republicans will continue to do nothing with respect to the threat posed by China. He still says that TikTok will expand in the United States, and he sees that as as a threat, a Chinese threat. This is something I do like, though, folks. We should all like this, that the Dow will close 2024 above 40,000. Where are we now? 36? 37? Something like that? That is a huge tick up. Uh, I'd like to see that. I don't know at this point. Yeah, it's at 37.7. That's a big jump. 
We are coming right back in the Element Well studio. Please stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. So, stop me Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are in the Element Well studio. We thank you so much for joining us. Dan in Hattiesburg says he believes the it will jump after the election. believe he's referring to the Dow. You know, it's hard to tell, Dan. Um, it, whomever is sitting in the White House could have an impact. But if we have split government, let's say the Democrats take the House and the Senate uh, retakes is retaken by the Republicans. I say retaken, it's been a while, but if, let's just say that it's flipped in that direction. That means both chambers would essentially flip to the other way. Still limited on what they can do. So here's what I continue to see is the problem. That means that we're relying on the president and executive orders. And once again, what we see is that the bureaucratic deep state the sprawling agency complex, is running the country. What they do has a larger impact on our day-to-day lives than that of the U.S. Congress, the people charged with making law. That's upside down. That's not the way it was supposed to be. I don't care who's the president. Doesn't matter. I don't want a dictator. I don't want somebody who can just unilaterally make policy. That's what we got going on now. Joe Biden, if you hadn't seen it, he's essentially defying the decision by the Supreme Court vis-a-vis forgiveness of student loans. I don't care. I'm still going to figure out a way. And so what he's able to do is work within the Byzantine set of rules regarding those are the terms of those Credit agreements, essentially. Those loans. And he's, in effect, forgiving them through modifying the terms of the agreement. Existing agreement. Just the terms of the contract. It'd be like if your mortgage company came to you and said, Hey, I tell you what. We're just going to change the terms of your mortgage so that instead of you owing us hundred grand, you only owe us fifty. But what they're sort of doing here is they're saying, Well, if you pay this much for this long, anything you owe after that, We'll just forgive it. They're they're dramatically modifying those those rules, which exist now. You're familiar with that. You pay for a certain amount of time, oh, yeah. and then after you hit that threshold, the rest is you're not liable for. So that's an example. I don't like that. We've got to get away from that. From that, we've got to get to a point where the people we vote for make these laws. And I don't mean little things. A trillion dollars is not a little thing. So, But that's where we're headed, and, and it's hard to say how the investment community would react. I do think that if we're able to get 
some modification and regulation that would boost the production of oil and thus bring down inflation and the cost of energy. I do believe that would stimulate the economy. I do believe there are a lot of concerns that we should all share about the very porous border. And that is rapidly ascending to a top, if not the top issue. It is insane. How in the world that goofy Mayorkas, Secretary Mayorkas, I apologize for calling him goofy. He is a member of the U.S. cabinet. But he's abdicating his responsibility. It's not like they picked the cabinet based on who's the best of the best. About the same way they picked the president of Harvard. It, I, don't, I don't know what box he checks. I'm sure there's one in there that has nothing to do with being qualified to serve as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Let's be honest. If that were the case, you wouldn't see 10,000 people coming across the border. And he continues to tell members of our Congress, oh, all is well. Well, I saw that they are fast-tracking impeachment. The House is of Mayorkas. Uh, Honestly, he may be more impeachable than the president. Both of them need to be, in my view. Uh, Now, we all know that that's a tall order in the Senate, which is what would be required to remove those two figures from office. But it would send a powerful message. I think they're losing a lot of Democrats. I really do when they see this, because we talked yesterday, I think we did. If not, you may know that California is extending, yeah, we did, their Medi-Cal health care benefits to migrants, illegals. They're already upside down from a budgetary perspective. They're just piling on more. Now they're citizens, even Democrats, are voicing concerns. They're saying it's not fair. They're right. It's not. It's incredible. So, also... You may know that our debt, national debt, reaches an historic high of a mere paltry $34 trillion. I want you to listen to Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, give her explanation of why we have $34 trillion in debt. Any reaction to the new data out of Treasury that the national debt has hit a record $34 trillion? So, yeah, um, if you look at uh, if you look at that data, uh, it's a trickle. There's a trickle down debt. If you think about it, uh, Republican tax cuts are responsible about 90 percent of it, uh, of the increase in the debt as a share of the economy over the last two decades, uh, excluding emergency spending. And so, as we know, you've heard me say this. You've heard the president speak to this of what he has done to certainly lower uh, lower the debt. He signed a legislation to lower the deficit by one trillion dollars. Right. When you think about the Inf- Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to lower prescription uh, drug costs and cracking down on the wealth uh, on the wealth tax uh, cheats that we've seen. And then his agenda would cut the deficit another two point five trillion dollars by making the wealthy pay their fair share. So that is what the president has done. What we've seen on the other side is the complete opposite. Uh, what they've tried to do is continue to give a tax break to the millionaires and the billionaires, and, and that what they have actually 
uh, put forward would add uh, more than $3 trillion uh, to the debt. So that's what uh, that data shows us, and that's what we have done to try to make sure the president has been very, very deliberate about this to make sure that he do everything we can uh, to uh, certainly deal with the with the debt. So I heard you blame the Republicans for the federal debt, but President Biden has been in office for 35 months, and uh, over the past three months, the U.S. has added $10 billion per day to the federal debt. So, and that's not turning around. So, so is there a discussion here about cutting spending? Okay, that's enough. Republican she, tax cuts. It's you, you, all she's going to do is tell you once again. No, cutting spending's not an option. It's those tax cuts, trickle down tax cuts. I don't even know where to start. I should invite her to midday's economics class because she's just. It would go in one ear and out the other. I guess. Just like everything else that actually makes sense has done in her tiny little brain the entire time she's been there. How she could stand in front of the American people and say tax cuts are responsible for 90% of the debt is beyond me. So think about this. Based on the current trend of spending, okay, if you wanted to start tackling the debt, first thing you got to do is balance the budget. If you don't have any surplus revenue, you can't pay down on the debt. You can't start to pare it back. All right. So with a $2 trillion deficit and $4.3 trillion of revenue, that means effectively you would have to increase revenues by 50%. Right? That's the math. That is assuming that by changing the tax rates and the tax regulations and structures, that would in fact produce 50% more. And that's never the case. Never. You think you can just get that out of the top 1%? You're not very good at math. That's well, how clueless. Well, Democrats, so no, they're not. They think math's racist. Well, that's true. Especially accurate math, right? So I, it just it galls me to see someone representing the president stand before the country and spout that BS. And once again, I remind our fabulous audience, anytime you hear those figures, except the debt itself, but when you hear the revenue and expense figures, 10 years. It's all 10 years. So when they say, yeah, the president's plan will cut the deficit by a trillion dollars, that's 10 years. That's $100 billion a year. And, and that's, it's going up by $10 billion a month. Exactly. You're dreaming. You're terrible at math. So is your Almost boss. like they're dumber than a bag of hammers. <laughs> Not almost. <laughs> On the ceasefire text line, big bowl of word salad. It's just, it's scripted talking points. They're sending her out to that Oh, podium. yeah, she's got a five-inch thick binder full <laughs> of everything, so she doesn't have to think at all. It's all been thought for her. She's just word vomiting it. That's racist. She's got diarrhea of the mouth. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, Bill Ackman, the billionaire Harvard alum that pushed to oust Claudine Gay at Harvard, penned an excellent analysis. We'll get into that later. Don't forget, Stacy Hopgood Wilkes at 11.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. Little blue oyster cult. There you go. So, Bill Ackman, he he was, uh, of course, the billionaire Harvard alum who was very outspoken from the get-go about uh, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, who has since resigned. Man, he, he wrote, uh, he's one of these guys that doesn't have a limit on his Twitter account. You know what I mean? The number of characters. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, have pay, right? Twitter blue or whatever it is now. Yeah. yeah. It was excellent, honestly. And he, he just makes so many great points. He says, I've always believed that diversity is an important feature of a successful organization, and he knows a little bit about running successful organizations. He said, but by diversity, I mean diversity in its broadest form. Diversity of viewpoints, politics, ethnicity, race, age, religion, experience, socioeconomic background, sexual identity, gender, one's upbringing, and more. He said, what I learned was that DEI was not about diversity in its purest form, but rather DEI was a political advocacy movement on behalf of certain groups that are deemed oppressed under the DEI ideology and methodology. And so they're like the, the, the arbiters, right, of you're the oppressor, you're the oppressed. And it all, of course, falls on racial lines. That's the fundamental problem. And he says that D, under DEI's ideology, any policy, program, educational system, etc., he says even climate change, due to its disparate impact on geographies and the people that live there, this leads to unequal outcomes among people of different skin colors, and that therefore is deemed racist. So it goes back to our reimagining of DEI as discrimination, exclusion, and inequity. Pursuit of equal outcomes is a different endeavor than pursuit or making available equal opportunity. And what DEI does, this movement, it essentially perverts that concept to provide greater opportunity. Favoritism is what it is, discrimination to those who they have deemed as oppressed. It's really good. He said, in order to be deemed anti-racist, one must personally take action to reverse any unequal outcomes in society. Not opportunities, outcomes, meaning you got to force and thrust people based on their race into certain benefits. I'm a, I would say being the president of Harvard is a benefit. And she's so oppressed, she's got to go back to her her measly 900k a year salary espousing her nonsense to impressionable students who by the way I looked it up will pay about 350 grand for their harvard sheepskin i just wonder if anyone in her classes is going to have the uh cojones to just straight up copy something yeah 
Maybe even something she wrote, in quotes, she wrote. Maybe she just published. Yeah. And see if they get an A. Good point. You know, something you've said that he talks about, a little, little different way to describe it, is that speech is deemed violent. Oh, yeah. True violence that destroys property, theft, harms the bodies of others, well, that's justified. That's how upside down it is. And the ultimate example of their circular logic is words can be violence, but silence is also violence. That's true. That's exactly right. And that sort of ties into Ibram Kendi's pronouncement that racism has to be fought with racism, right? So, wow. Says DEI is racist because reverse racism is racism. That's what they don't acknowledge. It's because their little crappy house of cards all comes tumbling down if you take that bottom one out. Well, that's true. And finally, something he said that totally resonated with me is that universities should look beyond in their search and their hiring of presidents, should look beyond just those that come from the academic community. Especially considering how much of academia has spent the last three weeks trying to say plagiarism's okay. We all do it all the time. That's incredible. That's incredible. This goes back to something we talk about a lot. I mean, how many Harvard employees signed on to support gay? It's like 700 of them? Yeah, across the board. So you've got 700 people at Harvard that are totally fine with plagiarism. And so they're saying that's a new conservative weapon, by the way. You've seen that? Right. Yeah. If you, that same writer also tried to attribute the concept of scalping to white colonialists. Saw that. So if you and now, then it got stealth edited without an editor's note. Like nobody noticed it. Like nobody on the internet has a screenshot. If you denounce plagiarism as misconduct, well, you're a racist. It's a conservative tool. So plagiarism only applies to those who have conservative viewpoints. It doesn't matter. To those that are, have liberal worldviews, oh, it's okay because it achieves our equal outcome. That's how they justify it and rationalize it. He says, I suggest universities should broaden their searches to include capable business people for the role of president. As a university president requires more business skills that can be gleaned from even the most successful academic career. You don't say. This is excellent. He says, with its hundreds of peer-reviewed papers and many books, that ain't got squat to do with running a university. He said, universities have a dean of the faculty and a bureaucracy to oversee the faculty and academic environment. Doesn't make sense that the university president has to come through the ranks of academia with a skill set unprepared to manage a university. We saw that on full display, did we not? Said the president's job. Think about Harvard. You're managing thousands of employees and you're overseeing a $50 billion endowment. You've got capital expenses, capital allocation, real estate acquisition, disposition and construction, and reputation management. No doubt. You're the face, the ambassador for the university. Wake up. Wake up, academia. The problem, as you know, is The next level down 
the tenured august professors, they don't want anybody that comes outside of their world. They fear them. They really do. You mean they can think on their own? We can't have that. They know something about income statements, balance sheets, and capital allocation, business deals. They might have actual expectations of me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Get your butt back in the classroom and teach these kids the skills they need to succeed in life. Not your warped agenda and ideology and worldview. That's irrelevant. If you're going to do that, bring somebody else in that can espouse counter-worldview and ideas. And then let the kids decide. Isn't that the whole idea behind learning how to think critically? Being exposed to multiple points of view and philosophies? I thought that was the whole, one of the major benefits of going to college. I think that's why it could be argued that their nonsensical ideologies can't hold up to debate because they fear it so much. That's true. They're going to figure out what we're all about, what we're doing, expose us. It's incredible. I saw some report the other day, no surprise, 93% of faculty and administration in higher ed donate to Democrats. 93%. How can you teach students to think critically, to expose them to the marketplace of ideas so that they can make their own minds up? If you've got such a skewed, such a skew towards one point of view that proliferates, permeates the instructors and the administrators. Well, you do it by painting everybody in that 7% as racists and xenophobic and homophobic and transphobic and all the other phobias. Well, it seems like they have succeeded in that respect. Did I hear the guy, Donald, in Oxford tell her that $10 billion a day has been added for the last 37 days? So let me share you a statistic before we go to break here. You know when NFL football season started, right? September? One trillion we've borrowed since we kicked the first football in an NFL game. One trillion. Think about that. Three months. Four months. How many commas is in a trillion? Four commas? Man, I'd have to write it down. I think so. (laughs) Just trying to visualize it because you just say a trillion and it goes over people's heads. I think that's right. Four sets of zeros, right? Yeah. Man, oh, man. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Element Well Studio on the ceasefire text line with respect to Clarine Jean-Pierre. She is no more than a talking cockatoo. She just repeats what she's been told without thinking about it. That's the only way she can sleep. (laughs) Robert and Brandon, it's also a shame that so many believe what she just said, and it, it is. 
And um, it also says, yeah, it's a shame that the media doesn't point out that the federal government takes in more revenue today than ever before. It's absolutely true. And that is with the Trump tax cuts in place. That was expected. Now, we have to shed a little light on that as well. A, a great deal of uh, the fundamental reason for that boost in revenue is because of all of the COVID money that was dropped out of helicopters on the country. That circulated uh, through the economy, and that produced lots of tidy income for people and companies. If, If you give people money and they go spend it, in general, I mean, we heard a lot of people say, yeah, that... That 2020, 2021, record years for us. Because people, consumers had so much money, dropped out of helicopters. And that boosted revenue because it boosted their profit. No doubt about that. But it is true what Robert says here, that so many just buy this narrative hook, line, and sinker. No doubt about that. That's a problem. And and they don't bother to go back and do a little fact-checking. And hopefully we are able to... That's why they've Shine gotten the so on. bold as to say that 90% of the problem was the Trump tax cuts. Yeah, I mean, that's insane. I don't know how they calculate that. I mean, I, I'm sure they've got all kinds of crazy math formulas they use I wouldn't to dream that, that up. much benefit of the doubt. Well, you, you're right. They may just say Probably 90%. Table, 90% sounds good. Yeah. Is that, think we could buy they'll, they'll buy that? Yeah, they'll buy that. Let's go with 90%. Sounds good. We are at war with the propagandist, says Steve in Saltillo. So I um, I saw a, a report that was really interesting about the possibility of Republicans and Democrats getting together and crafting some sort of plan to attack the Social Security problem and uh, just overall <clears throat> to deal with the deficit. I'm not sure what to think about it, but with respect to the Social Security issue, you got kind of a bipartisan coalition addressing that. And the bottom line is the the viewpoint shared by both parties, at least those representing the parties working on this problem, is that we're going to have to raise Social Security taxes. Now, the Democrats will tell you, oh, yeah, we just need to do that on the wealthy, and that'll fix everything. It absolutely will not. It cannot raise enough money. And the idea typically is just to get rid of the the ceiling. Ceiling essentially is the point at which in a year, in terms of earnings, all earnings in excess of that figure are not subject to the Social Security tax. It's uh, For this year, it's $168,600, 6.2% of all earnings up to that point. After that, zero. Medicare continues, but Social Security stops at one sixty-eight six. So what the Democrats want to do is just get rid of that threshold. I've seen plans that say, get rid of it at two fifty, pick it back up at four hundred. dollars seen others that say, just get rid of the cap altogether. You pay every dime of income, you're paying into Social Security. Now, here's the problem I have with that. For those higher income people that are paying more in, when they go to 
to file for their benefits, they get less. That's the other part they want to include in that plan. No, you paid a whole lot more in than these other people, but you're getting less out. It is a giant redistribution scheme at the end of the day because it's a defined benefit plan. So unlike, say, our PERS, where your benefits are based on the state retirement system, your high four salary, Social Security doesn't work that way. There's a little bit considered in your salary, but it maxes out, by the way. Once you hit like 3600 a month, that's it. It don't matter if you made a billion dollars a year and you paid taxes on every penny of that, Social Security, 6%. Think about how much money that is. When you retire, you're getting $3,600 a month. That's it. So that you can fund the benefits for everybody at the lower end of the income spectrum. That's the plan. This is going to be a controversial matter. Also, you know, I've talked a lot right now about the Trump tax cuts expiring in uh, at the end of 25. They're starting to talk about that. We'll get into that later on in the program. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News because it's top of the hour. When we return, it's Representative Stacey Hobgood-Wilts. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. First one of 2024. So we welcome to the program now Representative Stacy Hobgood Wilkes. She represents District 108, which incorporates Pearl River County. Is it just one county? One county. One county. Okay. One great county. And in the past, you served as the, our notes say, the vice chair of the House Constitution Committee. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. We don't know what's going to happen this year yet, do we? We don't know. (laughs) All right, so we were just talking about the bomb threat. You just shared that uh, all clear. All clear. Second second bomb threat this year, this session, um, but all clear. We didn't expect that to kick the year off. (laughs) Not at all. We were expecting a lot of things, but that was not one of them. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So uh, gaveling in today? Yes, 2 o'clock, and um, they will um, actually swear in the statewide officials today. Okay. At 2. That was supposed to happen yesterday, I thought. Or did yeah, we do? Today. Okay. It's been yeah, today. All been right. been today. My uh, misunderstanding yep. there. Yes. Okay. As far as well, I know, it's today. Yeah. Uh, so when do you think we'll get committee chairs? I think in the past I've seen it's like two weeks before the committee meetings start to convene. So I think end either. Of the month. It's usually uh, um, on a Friday, but I think it'll be either next Friday or the following Friday. That's kind of what I'm thinking. You're hearing anything? Any buzz you can share with us on that? Not really. I mean, <laughs> you hear a lot of things, but the accuracy of that, you know, is not really worth repeating. Um, the speaker's held that pretty close to his chest, which uh, is very understandable. Yeah, and sure. so, um, um, 
any believable stuff out there. No, nothing to nothing really to report. It's kind of um, no one knows. Right. And, and so the members are asked, are they not, yes. to sort of indicate their preferences? Yes, they are. And I believe um, new members are guaranteed their top several and then the ones with other seniority they're guaranteed like a few more okay. of your picks um but i think we picked 10 10 committees and doesn't guarantee anything i think you're guaranteed like i said a couple but other than that they put you where they feel that that they need you okay do you think the number of committees is too many not enough just right mm, probably a little many but yeah. um the senate's where but, i have a bigger issue with that when we have more committees than we have members yeah, yeah. Just because of the the composition in terms yeah. of number of members, yeah. fifty two members, and I think last time I looked at it, right, right now we had more committees than we had members, like fifty six or something like that last year. Yeah. Well, um, but as you know, as long as they're sending um, legitimate bills and the committees are working, then yeah. I have no problem with it. So okay. I know we're looking at a couple of new committees for the House, which um, okay, I think are going to be you know good and effective. So interesting. Yep. Well, what are you going to be working on? What are your priorities? Let's talk about that. Well, one of the big things that I'm working on right now is EMS. Um, EMS is in a uh, national crisis, and it really hasn't been touched since it was um, formed, like 50 or 60 years ago. And so the governor created a task force, and um, myself and Senator Branning are the two legislators um, on that task force. And... um, it's a task force full of people from that field of of all the different sectors and um it's really been good because we are having problem or they are having problems with recruitment hmm. um with um retention and reimbursements so there's a lot that has to be done there because so many people think when you call, you know, the EMS, you call an ambulance, you get a ride to the hospital. Yeah. But they have so many life-saving skills on there to save lives, and they okay. do so much more. So there's a lot that we have to do to keep that in place so that it's um, it's there when we need it to protect and serve the people. And that's managed, is it not, by the Department of Health? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. So is that typically, uh, from a committee perspective, is that the purview of the health committee? Usually legislation pertaining to that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it should go to the health committee. But it's it's not, it's not just Mississippi. It is um, nationwide, and everyone's, you know, really looking at looking at it and looking at reforms. But so many people, too, they don't go into um, to that because there's not a career path. Yeah. So we're looking at career paths and things. And um, I had a bill a few years ago where it let um, paramedics work as a paramedic off of an ambulance. Because prior to that, you couldn't. If you were a paramedic, really the only place you could work was an, on an ambulance. Okay. So now you can work in the private sector at Ingalls or, you know, somewhere else that might want a paramedic that would fit that need more so than a nurse or someone like that. So okay. we're moving in the right direction, but there's so much to be done in such a short period of time because of the need and the shortage. So um, that's why the governor created that task force and um, excited to work on some legislation stuff for that this session. Okay, that's interesting. Well, that we'll be watching that. Uh, some of the, the key issues that, of course, kind of find their way to the top. We hear a lot. You probably do from your constituents. So one is the ballot initiative process. Yes. That um, a lot of folks have said we need to restore that. I think that's the common view of, of certainly the public, the citizens of the mm-hmm. state. We've had two years, hadn't been able to get that done. Where, what do you think about that this year? 
I'm not sure. I haven't heard any, you know, talks on the numbers because that seems to be the problem on, you know, coming to an agreement on something. Yeah. Um, I do think um, the people need a voice, um, which they do have a voice as a legislator, you know, too, in their seats. But the people do have a right and have a voice. But you just have to be careful because I, I truly believe that um, there was a lot of misinformation and things that went out with the uh, marijuana um whole thing with that on the ballot and when you can put in a couple million dollars and buy your way into the constitution that's a problem so i think one of the things which i'm good with i'm I'm not okay with it going back into the constitution but if we do it legislatively where it can be changed if there's problems and two a big problem with it when it went in the constitution so many other states saw miss um saw unintended consequences so as they went through there and saw oh this didn't work you can't just go in there and change it so legislatively is the way to go on that the numbers i'm not sure how to make it fair but you know i think it has to be something that Keeps you from buying your way in, but also the people have representation. Okay. Yeah, so in the past, the, that's been the sticking point, the number of signatures yes. where the, the House has had a lower threshold, keeping the existing threshold. Right. And the Senate wanted more. Right. So that we, we got to maybe find something in between something that. Something in between. And I really haven't heard any talks on it. I know it's still an issue still being talked about, but what those numbers are, I okay. have not heard. I got you. Uh, what about uh, continuing to work on tax reform? You know, we got uh, pretty significant uh, legislation done there, re- eliminating the 4% bracket, reducing the 5 down to 4 over three years. Talk about that. And then, of course, possibly addressing the uh, the 7% uh, sales tax on groceries. Where, where do you come down on that? Yeah, that's one of the um, highest, I think, percentages in the nation. So um, At the state level, it at is. At the state level, yeah. yes. So we definitely need to do that because I think that um, eliminating that grocery tax or way reducing it, that helps everyone. It helps, you know, your um, retired people on a fixed income that really don't see a benefit from the um, uh, removing the income tax. Um, poor families, us, everybody that goes, you know, and shops for groceries, it helps everyone. Um, the more money we put in our pocket and decide what to do, the better off we are. Okay. I mean, I work for the government, but we, you know, we, we're better decisions with our money, make better decisions with our money than the government does. And so, um, and I think if we can, um, eliminate the income tax or reduce it, I mean, it's going to bring in more businesses to Mississippi. Yeah. But we do have to have triggers and we do have to do it responsibly. Okay. So speaking of which, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read the article that I wrote about PERS. I've, I've, I've noted that on the program that that's, I call it the elephant in the room. It's a big old yeah. problem that nobody has really wanted to address, certainly during an election year. Um, the speaker knows this is something that we, we have to take up. What, what are you hearing? What, what do you, how do you feel about that? Um, we are going to have to address it. Yeah. And while everyone hates to have to do that, you know, leadership calls on unpopular decisions sometimes. You know, you have to make tough decisions. Um, it's hard because I don't believe in breaking contracts that you have with someone. You right. know, someone's paid in all this time and guaranteed something, and how do you go and just say, oops, sorry. You know, if I tell you I'm going to pay you $50 and you come to mow my yard and you come mow my yard and then you mow it, and I was like, well, I'm just going to give you 25 So I don't believe in changing that contract, but at the same time, we have to figure out a way for future people coming in and also what we can do right now to make it sustainable. Otherwise, it's not going to be there. Right. I mean, it's really in a critical state, and something's really going to have to be done. So, I mean, as it stands right now, as you probably know, we, we're scheduled to see the employer rate tick up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, the, the latest proposal by the PERS board is 
let's do it 2% per year for the next five years till we get to the, what the actuaries say it needs to be. That's a 10% increase mm-hmm. in employer expenses on their yeah. payroll, which is significantly affects, uh, mostly affects, of course, school districts, municipalities, and counties. It's right. a big old problem it's, for them. Exactly. All it's all tr- it all trickles down. So finding that sweet spot. Yeah. Um, you know who it. You know how you can less affect. You know someone is is going to be very tough, but it has to be done. Okay, well that's good. Unfortunately, here. if you can hang around, we keep talking and go sure. through some other issues. Love All to. right, we got Representative Stacy Hopgood Wilkes in the Element Well Studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Stacy Hopgood Wilkes, represents District 108, which covers Pearl River County. Does somebody else have a part of Pearl River County, or do you have the whole county? Uh-huh. Um, Representative Jansen Owen has um, the north end of the county, okay. and uh, Representative Ladner has um, a piece of it. Too. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right, so we've we've talked about PERS. We talked about the ballot initiative. Uh, what what about talked a little bit about tax reform? Uh, I think health care is something else that the speaker certainly wants to address. Where do you see that going at this point? Um, you talking about on the Medicaid expansion? Well, I mean that's one idea, but just yeah. the, the, our hospitals, uh, many of them, even those in the I pointed this out, even those in the urban areas, we typically focus on the rural hospitals is losing money, but unfortunately, we have hospitals in our most populated areas which are bleeding as well financially. Um, no pun intended mm-hmm. there, but uh, and we have a huge uninsured population as well, one of the highest in the country, third or fourth highest in the country, and so the speaker. He's indicated, I heard him this morning say, he wants to address that. I mean, Medicaid expansion seems to always be what folks point to on both sides. We need to do Medicaid expansion to solve this problem. No Medicaid expansion won't solve that problem or won't won't actually fix anything. But I think we got to consider alternatives and, and maybe uh, create a brain trust that can yeah. address this issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not for um, expanding Medicaid. I think um, – I just don't think it's a good thing when you add more people um, to the Medicaid role. They come off the private sector, and that increases premiums in the private sector. Um, and also, the governor, um, with the um, negotiations that he made and got um, the higher reimbursement rate, yeah. um, I'm hearing from some hospitals that where they were like in the hole, like they're like millions up now because of that. Yeah. 
And uh, we put a big infusion into our hospitals last session. Yep. So um, hopefully, you know, over time and um, proper management of these hospitals, um, that things will start turning around. Okay. Is there work to be done still? Absolutely. But um, my big thing is we've pumped all that money into the hospitals and done that and fixed all that. But if we don't pump some money into EMS and work on these things that I was speaking to you earlier, we're going to have a big situation just like we did with our um, hospitals hmm. with the EMS. I mean, okay. you're going to call an ambulance and there's not going to be one to one available. So we need to be looking at pumping money into um, into that as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, so, yeah, that's right. The governor, of course, made a request to CMS to enhance the payments to base Medicaid, mm-hmm. some $700 million a year. Um, when you net it out, it comes out to a little under $600 million a year because you've got the loss of some of the disproportionate share payments and other expenses there. And that was done without any cost to the state um, because uh, – the uh, the hospital stepped up and said we'll cover the state's portion of that essentially. Yes. So, do you have any thoughts about how we should handle the extension of care to those that that don't have insurance and frankly can't afford it? I mean, I'm a person making fifteen thousand dollars a year. I'm an adult. I make minimum wage. We have a lot of that in our yeah, state. We They're do. working. We do have a lot. Too many, honestly, and they they. Get sick. They contract some sort of uh, serious medical issue that could cost a whole bunch of money, and the hospitals end up absorbing that cost now Right is what happens. You, you have some thoughts about how we should handle it? I really don't, but I do know, like, um, for instance, when we were talking about the um, EMS things earlier, so um, telemedicine and different things like that I think can help a lot and reduce, like, hospital stays. I know, like, right now, if you call an ambulance and they come out and you had, a, like, your blood sugar dropped or something and they look at you, check out, and don't... Uh, take you to the hospital they don't get compensated for that care that they came out and and gave you Hmm. so i'm thinking on some things like that if you can um, provide telemedicine to some people um, that keeps people out of the er's that keeps expenses down for hospitals where they're losing money in that Um, all the other things i'm not um, in the medical field i'm not really sure how to fix that to be honest i really not but i'm like you i mean we um we need to take care of people, not only as government, but as Christians, and make sure that they have, you know, food and the care that they need. It's our responsibility, I believe. Yeah. So for the for those that are not able to take care of themselves, okay. what that solution is, I don't know. But um, I think we definitely need to, you know, to look at it and talk about it and see what options are out there and maybe what other states um, similar to ours are doing successfully. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. What about um, another uh, something else that the speaker has indicated he has an interest in addressing is uh, school choice, education freedom. Where do you stand on that? I support school choice, but I also think that the devil's in the details, and um, I don't want it to be where it's only for a few people, but at the same time, I know you can't just overload the system and and, – let everybody in at one time you have a bunch of school districts that are doing really well so i think the schools have some say need a say in you know um turning someone down or you know having criteria and it just has to be done right again we don't have to reinvent the wheel look at other states that are doing really well with it and uh, model after them and make the changes based on that that we need to but i definitely support school choice that's true we have some good templates for that and And they need um, to reinvent the wheel yeah I, I totally but agree you can't, with you. It can't just be a free for all and open up the door, especially starting out. And you gotta, you know, gotta do it carefully to not um, set up schools right now that are really good and set them up for failure. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And and I think there there are a lot of uh, fears that are espoused by mm-hmm. opponents of school mm-hmm. choice that 
I think are a bit um, out of bounds, so aren't, aren't actually accurate. And I, I just felt like that we need to address those objections and get those we who did. oppose it, especially in the legislature, because you know we, our problem. We know most Democrats don't support this. Our problem is uh, is with the Republicans, with our own our own caucus, right. where we've got kind of split views on this. Right, and, and like you said, a lot of that is just uh, myths and untruths and things like that. So um, I think that we need to really have you know some hearings or have some things where um, where it all comes out and it's discussed. Um, I want to vote for the bill. Can I say I'll 100% vote for it? I can't say that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. But I do support school choice, and hopefully it'll be done right where I can support it. But but knowledge is powerful, and I think there's, um, just like with um, the uh, EMS, uh, corrections, uh, so many different um, things, that, the health care, I'm not as you know, familiar with some of that as I should be on the hospital situations. So much of that, we just need more information to be able to make these decisions. Yeah. So I think the more information we can get on it, I think probably the more support um, that it would find. I, I agree with you that uh, we should I, – I would like to see the legislature, see how you feel about this, to bring in more subject matter experts and people that are actually directly affected by lots of this policy. I know we do that to some extent. I think we could do a better job. I think we could invite more people from the field to come in and, uh, and educate. And that's where your knowledge is. My background is insurance and also public relations. Um, so I, all the time, when I'm working on legislation or know something's coming up in fields that I'm not, because I can't be an expert in all these you know, yeah. things, sure. I contact people back home, or even if it's not from back home, some contact that I've made. And that's what I love, networking up here, meeting different yeah. people, and you have resources. And I contact people that know a lot more than me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And get information, or where can I go to find more resources to study this? So you're exactly right. It's hard to make decisions on something that you don't know anything about. I agree. And it also seems like, uh, and get your take on this, there's a bit of a, uh, just a a difference, a contrast in the complexion of the House and the Senate. Yes. Without without asking you to to say too much about that, but uh, we still have Republican supermajorities in both chambers, and then, of course, we have a Republican governor. It's amazing how much we don't agree on and where we don't align between the two chambers, the the two houses. And I think a lot of that, too, goes back to what you just said and knowledge and what's presented in the bills yeah. and um, how much you know about them. Yeah. Um, from one of the things that the speaker um, talked about, we're going to have a lot of discussion more on different legislation, um, you know, and so I think that discussing these bills more and under different leadership um Philip Gunn did a great job, but I think it's just I think it's going to be a different um, kind of form of leadership. Um, we're all excited, but I think um, we're hoping that we can come more together um, as Republicans and work work more together yeah. and get things done. Do you see the uh, the dynamic a little different to the extent you want to comment uh, with respect to the Lieutenant Governor and Speaker Jason White relative to the Lieutenant Governor and Speaker Philip Gunn? Do you think that? That relationship will change any. I think they, no, no secret, they had some com- conflicts, you know, on, on policy positions here and there. Um, I, I think that um, I think they will both look at the bigger picture, and you know, there's 
there's legislators that I don't necessarily agree with on policy, sure. but we still like each other and we're still yeah, friends. And sure. you may disagree on one thing, but later you're going to, you might work with them on something else. And I think that's the same way it's going to be with our speaker and lieutenant governor that they're going to, um, hopefully compromise and work well where they can so that we can do what's best for Mississippi. Okay. Well, we certainly look forward to uh, getting to the meat of the session, which Absolutely. will be coming up pretty soon. And we appreciate you coming in, Representative Stacy Hobgood Wilkes. Thanks for having me. Yep, we're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, we thank you for joining us today. So that was a good discussion with Representative uh, Stacy Hobgood Wilkes, and of course we've got Tyler McCaw, the senator from Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott counties over there in East Central Mississippi, coming on at twelve oh five. Paula Meridian says a lot of us self-employed are uninsured. In my opinion, if you personally call an ambulance, they need to get paid. So here's the question, Paul, for a person who doesn't have that kind of money. There are a lot of those in our state. Uh, The services provided by an ambulance to some people would be a significant amount of their annual income for one ride. Not Not to pile on and layer on the cost of the care services that they might receive. The question is, how do we deal with that? Do we tell the ambulance, hey, look, can you pay? Because if you can't, I'm not coming. You just got to die. How do we deal with this? I mean, that that's the reality of the problem. And that's not suggesting Medicaid is the solution to that. I don't think that. All I'm saying is we have a lot of people in our state, in our country, that simply don't have the income to afford comprehensive insurance. And if they don't have insurance, they certainly can't afford services for health care out of pocket. So how do we deal with that? And I'm talking about people who are working. Now, it's, it's different when you get into those who aren't working. That's, that's a completely different analysis. So, But that's the question. How, how do we address this? And uh, that's what I attempt to do in my article that I should have up early next week. And I'll certainly let everybody know. It's just some kind of out-of-the-box thinking 
on how to achieve what is the ultimate goal of universal coverage. Let's put it this way. The ultimate goal is that health care providers get paid for what they do. That would drive the cost down for everybody. Because right now, we're paying for those who aren't paying. People who are paying for health care, either in the form of insurance or directly out-of-pocket costs, they're absorbing the cost of the people who are receiving care that aren't paying. And even that doesn't work, which is a big problem. And isn't it also accurate to say that though we didn't expand Medicaid, we haven't in this state, to add the coverage group, we did boost Medicaid reimbursement with the waiver that uh, the state just received from CMS that the governor proposed. I think that was a good idea. I mean, it was available, and CMS saw fit to approve it. So, and it doesn't cost the state anything. It, it, the hospitals, of course, are covering the state's portion in, under our state FMAP, the federal matching aspect of our base Medicaid. The this, this state uh, picks up about 22%. The federal government picks up about 78%. That's based on the household incomes. In a state, because ours is the lowest in the nation, we get the highest federal support in terms of the FMAP in the state. It's approaching $6 billion a year from the federal government to cover the Medicaid program. The state's portion is just under a billion. That's without expanding Medicaid. That's just out without it. Paula Meridian says, what if we had a system where you paid your monthly payments directly to your primary care doctor in the local hospital of your choice? Well, here's the deal. There are such concierge services available for that, Paul. They're not going to be everywhere. That's a problem. It's impossible to make that ubiquitous. And they're very limited in what they cover. And if you paid, um, and it's mainly geared for those who just need some sort of very minor, basic, elementary primary care, which is important because you can avoid lots of long-term problems if you can you can catch disease through primary care and wellness visits and examinations. But to hospitals, no, that's not possible. You might as well have insurance. They can't make the ends meet now with people paying exorbitant prices for insurance. That's even with everybody had commercial insurance. The one I looked at that kind of shocked me not too long ago was uh, Gulfport Memorial. Most, of, If you look at what's called their payer mix, most of their patients were uh, about, about uh, half commercial payers and then 40% or so Medicare, 8%, 10 or so Medicaid. Lost $60 million on $400 million of revenue. And that's with... Most of, and a very small uninsured in their patient census. That's mostly getting reimbursed from private insurers. Commercial coverage. It, it's, a, it's a difficult model. you got folks like the Cleveland Clinic, the uh, very prominent health care institution, lost a billion dollars last year. And, and we certainly can talk about they need to rejigger, re-engineer 
these, uh, uh, no doubt, our hospital facilities, they're, they're a bit old, they're aged, they're not designed for modern medicine, and that results in inefficiencies. There's no doubt about that. But there ain't no about amount of I- improving efficiency that can offset free. Nobody builds that into their business model. If you look at retail, as an example, you guys know this, the smashing grabs, retail theft, off the chart. What's happening? Well, many of those retailers closing in areas they just they can't deal with it anymore. I mean, they're losing so much money to theft. It's called shrinkage, and that, that uh, of course, includes theft. It includes, uh, sometimes that's employee theft as well. It's not always external. But so what do they do? Well, they raise their prices to account for the theft. We're all paying for that. So it's another situation where the honest paying people are paying for those who don't pay. In this case, who steal. I'm not saying that a person that receives medical services and doesn't pay, I'm not suggesting they're stealing. But in but in essence, somebody's got to absorb that cost. And who absorbs it are the people who are paying. That's built into the model. I saw the well, other I mean, day. if you walked into a barber shop and they cut your hair and you ran off without paying, that would be stealing. I would agree. But the difference is... If you go to a oil change place and they change your oil and then you drive off without paying, that's stealing. I agree. But here's what the difference is. The in general, the barber shop, the oil change service, they're fully expecting to get paid. In the case of hospitals, they know. I mean, most of the time they know who they're dealing with. Yeah, we're eating this one. And they don't stop, as I've said before, and say, Hey, you got any money? When they show up and they say I don't have any insurance, they know. They're absorbent because that's one of the first things you're going to do. But in an acute situation, you don't even do that. You just react. You show up, you know this, you show up to the hospital and say, I'm having chest pains. Boom. You go to the top of the line. You're going to get treatment. They're going to worry later as to whether or not you're going to pay. That, that comes after the fact, especially if you're riding on an ambulance and you're whisked into the ER. It, it's just, it's a different environment from a business perspective than any other. And, of course, as we've talked about before, the EMTALA law passed under Ronald Reagan in 1986, which compels ERs to stabilize patients as a condition of participating in Medicare, essentially means we don't care if you get paid or not. You're going to go take care of these people. Now, what they do is you get some payments through the Medicaid program, actually, these DSH payments, to help offset some of those costs. It's just federal money they send to you when you file your reports, and it shows all your undercompensated and uncompensated services, the value of that. And there are prescribed formats that are submitted, and they get audited and the whole bit, and they send you money to help with that. But it don't come close to covering the full boat. And that's where it gets complicated. If they have no intention to pay for treatment, it's stealing. Thomas, when, they, when they're when they having a heart attack, they're not thinking about that. If a person that makes $15,000 a year is told, by the way, for you to live, you need a hundred grand. If they said, I can't pay that, that's the dilemma. Then what happens? 
I mean, Rhino, have you got a little experience working in health care? Do you know of any providers that will say, I'm sorry, you got to die? None. Zero. They know it. And they, they have to figure that into their business model. And I, I just submit that there's no amount of re-engineering and reorganization and repurposing and all that sort of stuff that could ever offset free. And that's what we're dealing with, especially in the state of Mississippi. Now, how we address that, that's a much bigger issue than just Medicaid. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. That's on the all-hit request line there. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Little Van Halen would jump. So on the ceasefire text line, can you speak about Blue Cross, Blue Shield? Um, the question was, did they ever get things settled in Mississippi? That had to do with their dispute with University Medical Center. And yes, they did. That has been resolved. I can't remember when exactly it was, Rhino. Seems like it's been a year and a half or so, somewhere in that range. But yeah, they, it was uh, December of 2022, I want to say, was when it was finalized. Right. The CEO of North Mississippi Medical Center makes $1.8 million, might be a problem. I'm always shocked at how people tend to focus on CEO pay. Because the question is, okay, let's suppose they brought in a CEO that made half that much. Will the organization perform worse? Lose more money? I mean, it's... So that's the deal. I've seen this. You've probably seen this this uh, social media post going around about the pay to the CEO of uh, is it the ASCPA? I think I don't know if you've seen that or not. And and people are blasting that person because of their pay. And things are relative. So if you had if you paid less, you're likely to get a far less qualified person who would not be nearly as competent and not perform nearly as well at managing the organization. What does that cost? I submit that, assuming the board here that runs that hospital is competent and diligent in their compensation practices, including of the C-suite, that, okay, if you hired a a lower-cost person, you're going to end up with a less competent person that could cause a lot more problems. So you have to believe that, hey, I pay more money, I get a more competent person who performs better, produces better for the organization. You could end up with a person that makes half that much that literally torpedoes the whole place because they're not competent. I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know the market for those positions. But the market's the only fair arbiter of compensation, of pricing, of wages. The only fair. And this this 
and I don't it's not a meme, I guess, but it's just a it's a statement uh, about the the amount the president of the ASPCA makes. But it's like a three hundred million dollar organization or some huge deal like that. Um, so, and if you said, okay, let's take let's take five hundred thousand away from the CEO, I mean that that's not squat in the scheme of things. We just shared with you that, for example, Gulfport Memorial that's a four hundred fifty million dollar outfit. Okay, we're going to cut the CEO pay by five hundred grand. Woohoo! You lost forty million. It's the same thing that we get from the Democrats with respect to taxes and all their economic nonsense. Just math doesn't add up. That's just fundamental. Blue Cross, by the way, revenue last year. And I'm not defending Blue Cross. I'm just sharing the facts here. $880 million, of which, according to their audits, 1.5% fell to the bottom line. That's not a lot. 1.4, pardon me. That's terrible. 1.4%. Contrast that to any other industry. Any. Uh, 87.7% of what they take take in goes to claims. By law, it has to be 80. If it doesn't at least equal 80, they have to send rebates. Billions and billions of dollars of rebates have been issued by health insurers in this company, a country because they didn't achieve the required, it's called the medical loss ratio, the MLR. That, by the way, from the Affordable Care Act. You know you can only deduct $500,000 for tax purposes of CEO pay in the healthcare industry? See, I submit that government intrusion into the industry is causing this problem. Guess what these insurers have been doing to offset uh, the terrible performance in the in selling insurance in the insurance line of their business, buying the pharmacy benefit managers. You've seen that because that's not subject to the medical loss ratio. Guess what drove that? This medical loss ratio. So the government says we're limiting your profit, insurers. You got to pay eighty percent out claims, no matter how efficient you are. And they said, well, okay. We'll just go buy some pharmacy benefit managers, and we'll make all our money over there. That's the old, what do they call it, Rhino? The unintended consequences. Looks great on paper. We'll get those insurers. You're going to pay out everything you, you take in to providers, except they say, oh, here's a business over here we can get into. And you know what they do? They boost the pricing over there, and they've got that thing, as you know, so convoluted. Nobody figured out the, the PBM environment. Well, it's time for a break right now. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. When we return, Tyler McCann, the Mississippi Senator from District 31. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply. To think deeply. And look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
are back in the Element Well studio. We are live with the afternoon portion of Middays on this Friday Eve. <laughs> the first Friday Eve of the brand new year, 2024. I will say that I am enjoying the discussion with all the legislators, and now we bring in Senator Tyler McCon, represents District 31, which includes Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott counties. Uh, in the past, you've served as the chair of the Senate Forestry Committee and vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Senator McCon, good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming in. Good afternoon, Gerard. You know, first off, I've got to do this before Rankin County gets me. You know, I picked up a little bit of Rankin County now, so I want to go ahead and put that back in. Okay. We've got them on the list, too, now for District 31, but we're so happy to be here today. Appreciate you making that clarification uh, for us. I forgot that we've had a little bit of change in that. Uh, and, of course, I've always enjoyed uh, talking to you, Senator. I was thinking about this earlier when I saw you on the schedule, whenever we do the remote at the Loggers Association. That's right. That's um, right. That's fascinating. Uh, the first time I did that a couple of years ago, all that sophisticated equipment is incredible, isn't it? And, and that's a, a every other year event, and it's yeah. just amazing the number of people that come in here and the fact that forestry in general is now such a, a high-tech industry. Unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, it's just like in ag and anything else. We've continued to evolve that equipment where you can go in there with GPS and you can specifically determine where you're at. Uh, and just the fact that we've got such more uh, more proficient equipment. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. just it's amazing. But, you know, in general, we've got to do that. If we're going to continue to move the industry forward, we've got to keep going forward with, with making sure that we're utilizing all the fuel and we're not wasting anything, or we're utilizing all of the talent we've got there. We're not wasting anything because, unfortunately, uh, you know, our landowners are still hurting on selling their timber. Yeah. You know, when you climb in the cabs of one of those big machines, and you look at that all-glass screen in front of you, you just about got to have a degree in computer science to operate these machines. These well, days. I tell you, it, it is amazing. If you've never been in one now, it, it's it's totally different from taking that chainsaw out there and putting yeah. them on a bob truck and taking them to the mill now. No doubt. And um, and the and the pay is very good in that industry as well. I, you know, I've, I've visited a lot of mills. Since, uh, since I was appointed, one of the things I wanted to do was go and visit our mills, visit with our landowners, go to the associations and find out exactly what we've got going on and what we need to do uh, for the industry. Uh, one of the things that amazed me was going to these mills and finding out these people working in these mills, some of these mills are, are fully air-conditioned now. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's great. And in Mississippi heat, if you've never been in a timber mill or a paper mill in the Mississippi heat in July, then then you've not experienced heat like those guys have. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That All of that has uh, certainly evolved quite a bit. Okay, so we're just getting underway down there at the Capitol. Uh, it's, uh, I said earlier, another day, another bomb threat. Uh, gosh, that's crazy. I, I just, I'll, I'll apologize in advance. I have referred to whomever, uh, these, these malcontents are as idiots. <laughs> I just will go ahead and say that. That's a little out of my character, but I, I, I'm moved to say that. This is ridiculous, and I hope we've seen the end of this, and then we get down to business. I, I hope we have to, and Gerard, you've always spoken the truth, so I don't think you're, you're out of line with that <laughs> statement right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what I'll say is I, I'm thankful that we, we did one thing over the past few years, and that's move forward our capital complex district yeah. to get our capital police 
out there to protect the people that are going in Good and point. out of that capital and out of all of our buildings. Good point. So the response we're getting, I'm, I'm very impressed with. Uh, Commissioner Tindall's been been really good about providing the resources for that. He has. I, I agree. And uh, so I, th- I think that was a positive move on the part of our legislature. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a bit sad that it was necessary, but it was necessary. It, it was necessary. You know, the capital that is our capital. Whether you where you're at in Mississippi, that is your capital, and you want to know that you can come to your capital, you can view your capital, you can see your legislators, and you can know that you're safe there. Totally and that's agree. something I feel like we've done a great job of moving forward. I don't think we're totally there yet, but yeah. I think we're getting there. I agree. So I uh, appreciate you pointing that out. Okay, so we uh, we're scheduled, I guess, to start appointing committee chair. When do you expect that to happen? What's the lieutenant governor said? Anything? You know, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I would love to know that we got them maybe tomorrow, but I, I have a feeling we're probably about a week out before seeing okay. that. Uh, okay. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of turnover, though, yeah. uh, in the body. Which seven is new senators, that's seven, right. Yeah. Seven new senators. Yeah. And, and I'm fortunate to have one with me today just visiting and, and sitting in with us. Uh, Senator Rhodes from over at Rankin County is here yeah. with me. Another good Brian ag Rose, guy yeah. with us. Yeah. Uh, so so we're excited to have those people in. And, and, and I tell you, they're going to be a good class. Yeah. Just, just talking to right. them and knowing that. Uh, but bringing those senators in and knowing that they're in for the best interest of Mississippi – I think we've got our team together, Gerard. Yeah. In general, our state and our capital has the team together to move forward and take a comprehensive look at what we need to do for the state of Mississippi for the next four years. Okay. And from that point forward, if you look at your new senators, your new representatives, we're in a second-term governor. We've got some great statewides. I think we're headed in the right direction. And I'm anxious to see what we can do. Right. Well, I I certainly I'm with you on the optimism. I appreciate that, and I I've always believed that if you want good things to happen, you have to think about good things. You have to envision those things. You know, I used to coach youth baseball for many years. I'd always tell the batters, you want to visualize the ball coming off your bat going into the gaps, gap to gap. That's what I tell them when they're at the plate. Think gap to gap, and, it, and you can apply that same logic, I think, to what we're trying to do here in the in the state. We've got to believe that that there's nothing we can't achieve on a positive basis, and not just bury our head in the sand and say, oh, no, we can't do that. I agree. You know, people say, well, this is your first year in a term. Y'all aren't going to do anything, are you? And I beg to differ. I think we've got some great issues that we need to be dealing with. Uh, you know, we're, we're not there yet. We've yeah. done some great things over the last four years, and I appreciate the leadership of both uh, both houses to yeah. move that forward. Uh, but I'm anxious to see what we do this year. We okay. get those uh, committee chairs in there. I think we're going to see some movement on some, some big issues. What are you prioritizing, Senator? Uh, you know, I, I will always prioritize um, uh, my ag and forestry, uh, you know, uh, issues that are out there. So, so we're always going to be looking at at this year the foreign ownership. To be honest with you, it's okay. going to be one of the biggest things that we look at. Where do you stand on that? Uh, I stand that we're we're headed in the right direction. You know, it's inherently important for us to move forward. Uh, assessing the situations that threaten the health, safety, and welfare of our people. Yeah. You know, both domestic and abroad, we, we're here to assess those threats. Uh, I think you're going to see, uh, coming from the commission or, or the committee that was put together, the study committee, uh, and from their report, uh, I think you're going to see some good legislation come forward okay. uh, to make sure that we balance the act of protecting our citizens and making sure that we don't destroy uh, development in the state of Mississippi. Key word being balance. Balance. And, and, and we really need to think about that in all of our lawmaking, honestly. I, and, I uh, agree. 
Uh, you know, and over the past three months, I, I've been very fortunate to work with with our partners, whether it yep. be you know the farm bureaus or the forestry associations or, or whomever it may be, yep. uh, to keep working on that. And I think you're you're going to see a very effective product come out of that from all of the partners getting together. Okay, sounds good. Um, some of the issues, of course, that kind of left over from from prior um, sessions and certainly the prior term. Uh, I'd, I'd say tax reform is one of those. We, we of course, took a big cut at the income tax uh, in the state of Mississippi. We certainly welcome that. Uh, I think uh, certainly the speaker and the governor has made it clear that's his highest priority is to fully eliminate the income tax. Do you see any movement on just further tax reforms in the coming session? You know, I think you're going to see the Senate back up and say, hey, so what's the effect now? You know, we're seeing a change to people's income with interest rates running up and inflation running amok from the federal level. You know, on a state level, we've got to back up and say, hey, guys, we've got to do something about that as best we can. Yeah. I understand that uh, it's a federal issue that we're going to have a hard time reining in on a state level. Uh, but we do have to look and see where we're at from what we did. And, you know, we've got record uh, cuts from the past, and I don't disagree with moving forward. As long as we don't put it back on the landowner that's out there, your counties have got to be able to fund themselves yeah. uh, somehow. And I, I would hate to go up on our property taxes. We're already seeing property tax increases over the last year. And there's no doubt that there are a lot of folks out there that fear that, and uh, and they've expressed um uh, opposition to any sort of increases right. in the property tax. Of course, that would primarily come in if, for some reason, the state cut its revenue to the point where uh, its contribution to education uh, would have That's to be right. reduced, and which would put more of the responsibility on the districts, the counties, essentially. That's, right. That's where we'd see likely you know, uh, and and infrastructure the, as well. The unfunded mandates that we really like to do as a legislature, send it back down to the county and city yeah. to handle. Yeah. Uh, you know, with PERS's increase on yeah. the contribution level, that's going to hurt your counties and cities already. Well, we need to dig into that. Uh, we got a break coming up here. If you can hang around, we'll certainly Absolutely. talk about that. But, yeah, I agree, and the, the, you know this, that uh, mayors and city leaders, municipal leaders, they've all expressed concerns about that. I know this is going to be an additional expense that uh, they will have to bear, and they're looking for um, some support for the state, right? from the state, I should say. we got uh, Senator Tyler McCon and his guest, Senator Brian Rhodes here uh, from uh, the great county of Rankin. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. We are live in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Senator Tyler McCon. He, of course, represents District 31, Lauderdale, Newton, 
Scott Counties, and also a little piece of Rankin now, right? That's you know right. That's okay. right. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on, as always. And, and uh, in the past, you've served as the uh, chair of the Senate Forestry Committee, vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee, which we should point out is a significant part of our economy. And that's why it's important, right? 35, 39 percent, I think, uh, Ag Commissioner Andy Gibson, typically that's the figures he shares. And and, and I think he's pretty close on his numbers there. You know, we're so happy. Mississippi, you know, we can still grow it. You want it grown, we can grow it for you. We we send from the coast all the way up north. If you look at it from our seafood industry, moving up to our our pine timber there in the Pine Belt area, you move on up into our delta, we send out crops around the world. And that's something that's very important. Much less. Poultry, which is uh, pretty big in Scott County, where where I grew up, yeah, and I sure. was very fortunate to be raised on a poultry farm. Whole bunch of uh, farms and, and processors. That's right um, in Scott County over there. That's right. So. Uh, we we're continuing to see the growth there, and and we'd love to know in the future that maybe we can continue to build in uh, that processing facilities there in Scott County to to keep them there for the years to come. Yeah. Big part of our economy, for sure. So let's talk about uh, the ballot initiative uh, process. Of course, uh, you know that uh, uh, based on a ruling from our Supreme Court, it's been invalidated. So we don't have one here in the state of Mississippi. That that came about when it was contested after Initiative 65, which actually passed at the ballot box. It was contested, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, this thing really doesn't align with our Constitution, which uh, actually specified um, uh, the number of signatures that had to be gathered across five congressional districts. Right. We only have four. So that was um, – I think that wasn't well thought out when they drafted that, unless it was intentional. I don't know. It's hard to say at this point. But um, – that comes up a lot, Senator. I hear from just the public anecdotally in general. They want right. to see that restored. What, what do you think? You know, I, I was very fortunate this this week to be sitting down with another uh, companion of mine uh, in the Senate, and we, we had a little breakfast meeting, and we talked about this issue uh, ad nauseum there for a little bit. Um, Senator Boyd and I have worked on this together over the past few years. Uh, as you know, I was in here a couple times last year uh, yeah. discussing that. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's going to go away. Okay. I think it's going to be it's there, to and uh, and I think it's going to continue to be debated uh, among your members. You've got a, a few new ones this time, and yep. I don't even know where they would stand on it. Yep. Uh, but I will say that the beginning uh, bill last year and the ending bill last year that eventually died was substantial progress for the state. I think that's a good way to describe um, it. Yeah, I, I think we we hashed through a lot of things that were uh, were questionable and things that people didn't like. Um, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of people that do talk about it out there, but there's a lot of people that really don't have a lot of interest there. Yeah. Uh, you know, the biggest concern is what does special interest do with it? Because unfortunately, uh, a lot of legislation we do is really good for uh, the people. And then it gets um, utilized by special interest to maybe not be so good for the people. I think that's true. And so we'll see where that lands. But I, I, I get the feeling that's going to come up, that uh, the House likely to get something done. But the Senate may draft its own version like right. we've had in the past. And, and maybe we'll go to conference and hash that out and, and get something done. Uh, the lieutenant governor has indicated whenever I've talked to him that he supports – uh, the ballot initiative process, but he favors a higher signature threshold to to just make it more difficult, essentially, um, and so that it can't just be bought. 
Um, you know, it's kind of the way he describes it. And that's fair. I yeah. mean, when it was first put in, there was no Facebook. There was yeah. no electronic right. media here or mail going out. Uh, you know, you had to go door to door and you had to see that person and, you know, eye to eye and tell them, this is what we want to do. Yeah. And this is where I need you to sign. Yeah, now all it's just, uh, you know, a, an email that's sent about 12 o'clock at night that's and somebody right. sees it and all of a sudden we've got a signature there. Yeah, I think that's right. So things have changed. Well, we'll see where that goes. Uh, any, any thoughts or ideas about uh, continuing to whack away at the at the income tax? Uh, you know, the governor has indicated that's his top priority is full elimination of the income tax. A lot of people have expressed um, their advocacy for reducing or eliminating the sales tax on groceries right. uh, is a higher priority than the income tax. What do you think? Well, I, I like the idea of us working on the grocery tax a, a lot better. I mean, okay. we, we took a huge cut uh, on the income tax you know, in this last four years. Yeah. Uh, I think we really should be doing something that does directly impact every Mississippian. Uh, there's not a Mississippian here that doesn't go to the grocery store and get a, a, a thing of milk or, or a loaf of bread every now and then or, or whatever it may be for their household, and that would go directly back to their pocketbook. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we of course, uh, have to watch that and make sure that whatever we do, we do uh, help and make the uh, the counties and the cities whole from that income tax reduction. But if you look around, that directly impacts everybody. Yeah. That is an across-the-board tax cut, and that's something we really should be looking at. Okay. Well, we'll see where that goes. Um, uh, I know the governor said, you send me any bill that cuts taxes, I'm signing it. I mean, I've heard him say that before, so uh, I don't think he'd be upset one way or another. I think he actually believes that we could get something done on both, and it could be that we we have some – uh, some measure that phases in elimination of the income tax based on achievement of certain targets uh, from a budgetary perspective. So we'll see where all that goes. Uh, something else that um, certainly the Speaker of the House has, has talked a fair amount about is uh, school choice, education, freedom. Right. I think we're going to see some movement there, at least some, some deliberation at a minimum. Uh, what do you think about that? I would say the House and the Senate kind of have a different, different uh, take on that. Well, you know, the one thing that we've not done is we haven't really had um, we haven't had the bill really come forward yeah. in the past for us to have these discussions. That's true. So what I'm excited about is seeing this discussion begin. You, okay. know, I, you know, of course, we're going to see the the public education advocates that are not going to be real thrilled about it. Uh, we're going to see, of course, the other side that's going to be pushing it, yeah. and I think we're going to see some really good discussion come from that. Uh, what do I think at the end of the day? I don't know, but okay. what I'll say is that it is a a comprehensive issue that does not, not neither part exists in a vacuum. Yeah, and and that's something we've got to remember as we go forward. Uh, you're seeing school districts start to look at, hey, we don't need these buildings anymore. Maybe we can reduce our budget with the, the Jackson City Schools doing some things, and yeah. that's been controversial. But you know what? It's something maybe they needed to do. Yeah, uh, and maybe that's something we need to do is in general is look comprehensively about this and see what we need to do. Uh, to further these school districts, we've got some really good school districts. You know, Rankin in general has 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 got some really good schools there. We've got some other schools around that maybe are not doing so well. Yeah. Uh, but we've got some good ones in counties. So okay. I don't think we should be going to the detriment of our teachers that are there doing their best to move forward and and teach our kids. Uh, but I am anxious to see this discussion begin. Okay. Well, I I, I agree with you. Any reforms and and uh, you know I, I advocate for. Uh, reasonable education choice, school choice, right. but but want to be clear. I, I don't support any reforms that would in some way harm existing good performing schools. 
we we don't want to do that. We don't we we don't want to tear them down or uh, impede them, hinder them in any way from continuing to perform in a positive way. Um, so there's, I think there's something we could do that, uh, again, going back to the word balance that you used earlier. Right. And, and what I've explained to the audience, the senators, that it's not like there's a template or a model other than what's been implemented in other states. We're starting out with a blank slate here. We right. may be whatever we want that can pass the chambers and get signed by the governor. So well, you look at our charter schools. I mean, the charter schools that, that we have out there, how many of them are failing? Yeah. There, that's a problem, and, and there there needs to be some analysis of that. Why exactly right. is that happening? I, I kind of have a theory that we end up uh, seeing the charter schools admit uh, the students that are coming from public schools where they weren't performing very well in the public schools. Now we're trying to get them in charter schools and catch up. But I agree, there certainly needs right. to be some investigation analysis. And then uh, I think there's some efficiencies in our public schools. I don't think there's any secret about that. Um, there are those who think that uh, we got too many districts and maybe some consolidation. So, But I agree with you, a comprehensive analysis of the entire public school ecosystem is necessary here right. uh, to do something meaningful. And, uh, and I'm a product of the public school. Yeah. Uh, I'm very fortunate to go to, to, to Morton High School and be a graduate of that, that school, and we had a great class. Yeah. Uh, but we also need to be looking back, and as you said, to be seeing who's going to those charter schools you know, we need to be sure that the kids in there that are that are progressing and are learning to the levels they need to be learning uh, are getting the attention to move forward, and the ones that are not are getting the attention to get caught up yeah. and not have one be the detriment of the other. The lieutenant governor, every time I've seen him speak, he, he's always put at the top of his list the idea of free community college. He thinks that is something that the state would benefit from. Uh, I know you don't know until you see the bill, but is this something that you feel like is going to come up? You know, if you go over to Lauderdale County, you've got Meridian's been offering tuition for their their uh, county for a number of years. Yeah, a great community uh, college. Great community college over there. We have an amazing community college system. No doubt. And anything we can do to encourage our people to go and utilize that system is something I'm for. Okay. Well, we look forward to visiting with you some more uh, as the session proceeds, Senator Tyler McCon. Over there in East Central Mississippi has been our guest. Appreciate you coming on, Senator. Thank you, Gerard. And thanks to you as well, Brian, for coming on. All right, we're stepping aside for a break. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. ceasefire text line someone says i'm opposed to the ballot initiative that's why we elect our representatives and senators and that would align with senator john polk's position honestly though he's never said it directly i get the impression that the lieutenant governor is not a fan 
he um, and and I think he knows that that may be politically <clears throat> unpopular. That we got to do something. So I think his approach has been okay. Well, we're just going to jack up the signature threshold to just make it really difficult to get a measure on the ballot. Now, I get the concern about powerful, well-funded special interests sort of buying their way to legislation. However, something you and I have talked about before, if you jack up the signatures, it could mean that that's all that ever gets the powerful, well-funded special interest that a grassroots movement just doesn't have the money. Because it does cost money Oh yeah, to go out and mount a campaign. I mean, you do have volunteers in these campaigns, especially when you have people collecting signatures. You will have some of them that are volunteers, but also you have some of them that are paid workers. Yeah. I mean, I think to succeed at it, you got to have some money. Oh, yeah. I think that's fair to say. So I have a little different take. I understand the concern, and I can tell you the abortion lobby. Is really we've been watching them and reporting stories throughout the year since the Dobbs case. They have mounted campaigns in a number of states and been successful. In fact, every effort from a ballot measure perspective to either prohibit the restriction of abortion or to expand it has succeeded. The abortion zealots have won. The pro-choice community has essentially defeated the pro-life community at the ballot box. And I think that's largely because of their focus and their money. I think they came out of left field, and and, uh, a lot of pro-life people, I think, were caught off guard. Didn't expect it. Interesting. What about uh, Ken and West Point, fully licensed contractors for 25 years, being forced to join the Mississippi Board of Contractors? Yeah, you know, I actually remember back in my business days, um, some of the services we provided were subject to a contractor's license. I think mainly that uh, involved uh, our structured cabling services, which, by the way, I ended up spinning that out into a separate company altogether that focused on that and not only service my company, but third parties. Um, yeah, I, I hear you, Ken. You know, and I, I think, um, to your point, we should certainly take a look at further licensing reform in the state of Mississippi. I've always had concerns about an, um, a business's peers uh, having authority over their being approved for licensing. I'm going to go compete with you. I need a license. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but you know what I'm saying. That that kind of is the way the environment looks. So I'm with you, Ken. I think we should take a look at that. Of course, the hot-button issue in the whole world of licensing has been uh, services allowed by nurse practitioners. That, that has gotten an enormous amount of attention. What do they call it, right? A full licensing authority, I believe, something to that effect. And there are other states that certainly are more more generous with respect to allowing their nurse practitioners to perform certain services. So, there's, look, there are strong views on both sides of that argument. And, you know, when you hear the people 
that express their points. They kind of both sound good. I mean, so maybe in the middle, maybe the balance that Senator Tyler McCann was talking about is where we ought to be focused. With respect to PERS, Jerry and Leesburg understand that any reduction of the promises made by the state to retired employees or current employees that were promised retirement from PERS will be political suicide, among other things. And Jerry, first of all, I hear you, and I agree, and we have made that point countless times. In fact, what I've said, I've gone so far as to say is, if there are any material changes to benefits for existing beneficiaries, those that are uh, retired and drawing PERS benefits, or material structural changes to future benefits for those that are currently enrolled as active members of the system, that there would be lawsuits and that the members of PERS would ultimately own the state of Mississippi, is what I've said. So nobody's suggesting that. Let's be clear. The only... The only possible suggestion I've heard related to that is to perhaps freeze the cost of living adjustment at its current level and not compound it in future years for some number of years, which would, in fact, save some money. But it's not enough to cure the economic problems of the system. It's just not. I think last I looked, it's about $2.1 billion of benefits through the basic service benefit, about 800 a million are paid in the form of the cost of living adjustment. Now, I will tell you this. The good news is PERS had a had a good year from a financial perspective in 2023. Of course, the markets were on fire in 2023. So listen to these figures, Rhino. For 2023, income from investments, the PERS investment portfolio, which sits at around $30 billion, $2.2 billion of investment income. Last year, $2.9 billion of investment losses. Nearly a $6 billion, actually more than a $6 billion swing. But that, for the most part, aligns with market performance in 22, market performance in 23. You have to look at it on a longer period of time because it's a, it's a long play proposition. And overall, the investment portfolio is performed in line, and I talk about this in my article, with other states and with the markets. So could it be better? Well, sure. Everybody thinks, yeah, just let me have at it, and I'll get you more returns. But you're managing a gigantic portfolio here. Uh, Typically, the public pension investment portfolio in any given state is the largest in that state. Stands to reason. Maybe, I guess, some exceptions if you looked at uh, kind of the ground zero for the uh, the wealth management industry, New York. I don't know. I haven't done that. But I, I know from just researching public benefit plans, those are usually the largest in a given state, certainly in a rural state such as Mississippi. So the um, the performance was actually pretty good for the PERS fund last year. It, uh, it increased what's called its net position. Its net position. Uh, just looking at the numbers here, looks like it increased its net position. Essentially, that's its equity, if you will, uh, by hmm, almost $2 billion. So it wasn't bad. And that primarily is attributed to 
these investment returns. So that's good. But you know this. You can't rely on that. You, you can't. You don't know. That's why you put a reasonable target in place, because you have ebbs and flows, ups and downs in the markets. So you can't go making decisions about, well, if we just have this same level of return in future years, we can make adjustments to the program on that basis. Uh, so we'll see. But that, that actually is good news. And I, and I agree with Jerry. Yeah, and I haven't heard, again, the only thing I've heard is the possibility of freezing the current level of cost of living adjustments, the so-called 13th check. Just let that ride for two, three, four, five years. You still get it, but it's at the level it is today. There's no 3% annual compounding, which is what we have now, which honestly has contributed to the financial instability of the program because it's not tied to the CPI. I actually go through the math uh, in my article if you're interested on that. Paul and Brandon says... I'm talking about um, the cost of health care. After my wife's accident, she took a $3,000 ambulance ride from Brandon to UMC. They only put a monitor on her and nothing else for $3,000. And so, Paul, that's the point I was trying to make earlier, which is the $3,000 that you incurred is to pay for the 10 people who rode in that ambulance that, got, that paid nothing. Now, that's literally the model they're trying to figure out. We got this many paying, this many not paying. What do we got to charge the people paying to make ends meet? If everybody paid and had some skin in the game, situation would change. The question is, how do you address those who simply don't produce enough income to buy comprehensive insurance coverage? And that's kind of what I dig into in this article that I'm I'm currently drafting is just some out-of-the-box thinking on how to address that. Chris and Boomble says, us EMS workers are broke. We don't ask society to help pay for our cars or houses or anything else. Why ask or make them pay for our health care? Okay, what? how do you handle the situation where somebody shows up at the ER and they got no money and they're going to die if they don't get care? We're coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. segment on middays so I noted that the lieutenant governor penned an article discussing the state's labor participation rate which is the lowest in the country a little over 10% lower than the national rate so I have some thoughts about that and and the lieutenant governor in his article uh, I think correctly points out that if we can get those people working, it would it would certainly benefit everybody in the state. I agree that effectively half the people in the state that are working are supporting the half that aren't, because it's about 51% the labor participation rate. And so, uh, just so you know, that's a measurement of all those who are within some age range, I can't remember the exact, 18, I think, to 54 or something like that, that could work, that are working. So, if 
It's different than unemployment. Unemployment measures those who are out, uh, the percentage of those uh, of of the population that are in those that working age range that are out of work and seeking a job. The labor force participation rate doesn't consider are you looking for a job or not. It's just this is the total number of people that could work. They're not disabled. They don't have any anything else that are that's hindering them from working within that age range. And in Mississippi, it's like 51%. Dismal. By the way, the goofy president runs around talking about all the jobs he's created. And the labor participation rate is the key statistic there. Because it is a measurement of the total number in the country working that can work. Not just those working that are looking for work, either working or looking for work. That's a kind of a backwards calculation to get the unemployment rate. So I do agree with the lieutenant governor. This is a, a metric and an area on which she, we should focus. But here's where I differ. He talks about policies such as um, teacher pay raises and, and some incentives and retention of teachers and workforce development and how great our community college. I agree with every bit of that. All that's good policy. Here's what I think we need to do. Has anybody ever gone into these communities and approach these people who are in that 50% that can work but aren't and say, how come you're not working? I really do think it, it requires some grassroots analysis. Why are you not working? By the way, here's all the jobs available. Now, is it possible it's a mismatch that, that your skills don't fit the jobs available in your community? It's possible, but I dare say there's a lot more alignment and, and employers being desperate for workers, they're, they're willing to, to take a chance. And many of them have programs themselves, and they're willing to invest in these people. You know what they want? Show your butt up for work. That's what they want. And be respectful. Follow the policies. So I just I scratch my head and say, where are these people? How do they exist? And I know everybody immediately says, well, they're getting all these benefits. And I look at the benefits, and it it doesn't amount that much. And you could say, well, health care, they're, they're getting free health care. But that only matters when you need health care. It's not like they're sending you a check. You can't eat with free health care. You can't buy a house or a place to live, a roof over your head. So I just wonder, where are they? And have we ever? And why is our rate so much lower than the other states? I don't think that means people in Mississippi are inherently lazy. What is going on here? Well, to play devil's advocate here, okay. we have the lowest cost of living. So even if you do have a lower output or input or benefits, okay, if you have your medical covered, you can get subsidized housing, you can get your groceries paid for, you can get cell phone, you can get... A deal on your electrical power or your electrical bill, your water bill. Internet. If, if you even pay it, you can get internet. Yep. All of these things can be subsidized. So You're right. in a state with a low cost of living, maybe Uncle Sam is offering enough to say, well, you may make a little bit more if you get out there and work 40 hours a week, or you could take home a little bit less and not do anything. That's possible, but it's still, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking 
a little uh, more aggressively, that doesn't amount to a very nice lifestyle. No. Is it that many people that are satisfied with that? And with respect to the It seems health- at least a percentage of them would have to be. Okay. And, le- and with respect to the health care, they're getting free health care, not because they're insured, because they know if they get sick, they're going to get taken care of. That's what we've been talking about, because they don't qualify for Medicaid if they can work. They don't qualify for Medicaid because we don't cover that. If they're blind, disabled, pregnant woman, old, child, they do. But uh, this working age population that is included in this statistic, this metric of labor force participation rate, I think they just know, well, yeah, I can just run down to the hospital. They're going to take care of me. It's not going to cost me a penny. There's no risk in it for them. But that's still, I mean, how do they get around and probably if they do have something that they can afford from a transportation perspective, they got no insurance. We're out of here today. We thank you so much for joining us. Back with you again tomorrow. Stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.